Good morning. In many of the world's religious traditions, it is a practice for um, visiting speakers, visiting guests to bring greetings. And so this morning, I bring you greetings from Chicago with Meadville Lombard Theological School. I bring you greetings from the four congregations in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I bring you greetings this morning from my heart. It is a pleasure and a joy to be here with you all this morning. I want to invite you to think for a second about your favorite animal. Or maybe to put it a little bit different way, think about if you could be any animal that you could be, what kind of animal would that be? Don't, don't call it out, but bring it to mind. Maybe it'll help to, to close your eyes if you want to. Um, but think about an animal, any animal in the world that you could be. Maybe you want to be an animal that's strong and powerful. Maybe you want to be an animal that is, that is quick and bright and smart. Whatever it is, call it to mind right now. How many people in this room were thinking of the incredible, the adaptable, the awesome salamander? <laughs> this little critter is really, really incredible, and he's one of my favorite animals in the world. In the Appalachian Mountains, we have over 76 species of salamander. And what's really cool is that as the climates warmed in history, the the temperatures rose and the populations of salamanders that were able to live down in the valleys together, they moved higher and higher as the temperatures warmed so that they could stay cool. And so you had different populations of salamanders living on different mountaintops. And over time, those different salamanders evolved into different species. So that's kind of cool. So in the Appalachians, you have salamanders like the redback salamander that snakes its way through the earth, through the roots, in some of the drier parts of the mountains. Now, if you know anything about salamanders, is they need to be wet in order to breathe. They breathe through their skin, sometimes through their gills, but they need water to be able to breathe. The redback salamander doesn't live near water. The redback salamander actually lives in the roots of trees and plants because the roots of the trees and plants hold moisture in the soil so that the salamander can breathe. Well, in exchange, the salamander eats the bugs and the funguses and other things that would destroy the roots of the trees and plants. So they work together. There's also the spotted salamander, which is really, really cool. Because this salamander has evolved on a molecular level alongside certain species of algae. Now, if you know anything about algae, algae are kind of like very, very primitive basic plants. They need sunlight. They're these organisms that live in water, and they need sunlight in order to make food. But there's a species of algae that have evolved with the spotted, with the spotted salamander to actually live in the bloodstream of the salamander. And what happens is that when the mother salamander lays eggs, the algae starts to grow inside the egg right beside the embryo. And if you know anything about salamanders, they lay their eggs in rocks, in dark places, sometimes in caves, and there's no sunlight. So the algae feasts, instead of eating on sunlight, the algae actually eats on the waste products of the embryo. 
which is kind of gross. But in exchange, the algae gives off oxygen and creates an oxygen-rich environment for the spotted salamander to grow. So why do I bring this up? Why did I start this morning talking about salamanders? Well, it's not so much about the salamanders as about their behavior and the way they found ways to interact with the other members of their community, the other members of their environment, to create a, a situation where they can grow and thrive. Earlier, we heard an excerpt from the book Gardens of Democracy by Lou and Hanauer. And they argue that our Western institutions, so everything from our governments to our economy to our social, to our social structures, have been based on a fundamental misunderstanding of Darwinism. The idea that only the strong survive. It's dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest. We have created our government on the idea of competition with other governments. We've created our economy on the idea of competition with others. And this translates into practically every dimension of our society, including, I would say, our religious institutions. For the better part of the last two centuries, our vision for how our communities could advance has been thought of in oppositionist terms. Going back to the list that Laura read earlier, I should be able to do whatever I want so long as it doesn't directly harm anyone. Your loss is my gain. The less competition there is, the more money there is for me. Only the strong survive. Only the smart survive. And yet, if we observe the natural world with a critical eye as Darwin did, we see that in fact the natural world is not survival of the fittest and pure competition. No. The healthiest and most vibrant ecosystems are those that have the most biodiversity, the most cooperation within a single species and between multiple species. So if we think about the natural environment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for some input here. If we think about the natural environment and we think about the importance of diversity, what is the importance of biodiversity in an environment? For balance? Resilience. Balance and resilience. One of the main reasons biodiversity is important in ecosystems is that it builds balance and resilience. Resilience, especially, to traumatic events. It's a fancy way of saying that biodiversity, having lots of different organisms, lots of different individuals of a species, prepares an ecosystem for when bad things happen. The more, the more different types of plants and animals and other, and other organisms an ecosystem has, the better prepared that ecosystem is when dangerous things happen in the environment. This is especially important when we talk about a changing climate. As storms get stronger, as global, global temperatures continue to rise, as ocean levels rise, one of the hopes that the natural world has is that somewhere in all of the Earth's biodiversity of various ecosystems and environments, some species of plants or animal or some relationship will have the needed response to a given crisis. Now, this is a very broad oversimplification, I know. It puts something very complex in very simplistic terms. But 
I think it sets it up really well for a parallel that might be made between a changing global weather climate and a changing global social climate. Our social climate is changing. As a millennial, I roll my eyes every time a new article comes out about the different ways we are killing any number of industries. Department stores, gyms, airlines, napkins, diamonds, fashion, the NFL, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on. You can just Google, millennials are killing, and you can put anything in there, and an article will pop up. It's a little bit frustrating. (laughs) But the simple truth or perhaps the more complex truth, is that the death of these industries speaks less to the selfish choices of one demographic and more to the changing needs and desires of our social world. The UUA is not immune. All over the country and world, our congregations are struggling to meet the demands of the modern world. We face declining membership numbers, We face declining donations. We face declining numbers across the board. As our older and more affluent members are passing away and the majority of our younger younger people cannot make the same amounts of money that they made once, people today will not make the same amount of money as those who came before. And we can certainly encourage people to give at similar percentages but we can't expect to make the same amounts from the same numbers of people. Our congregations are seeing less and less money from the same numbers of people. How many people in here, when I'm talking about this, your heart starts to race a little bit, your, your sides clench a little bit, you get a little nervous? That's an understandable response. And this problem has driven us to look for more membership, in main, and, and not just in UU, but in other mainline denominations, there are literally thousands of articles written every year on the religious nuns. That's the N-O-N-E-S, the people who claim no religious affiliation, the proverbial spiritual but not religious. And these articles detail at great length how we need to change our worship services, how we need to change our ways of asking for money, how we need to change our ways of being in the world to attract these people in. They're out there. They just haven't found us yet. How many people have heard that before? It's not enough for Unitarian Universalism to be a home for everyone. I would argue that we can't be a home for everyone. To think that we can is to buy into the same old models of competition that led to the current social climate in the first place. Another denomination's loss is our gain. It's every church for themselves. Only the strong congregations survive. In the larger community, in the larger picture of things, perhaps a way that we fight back is by being in relationship to our community around us. There will always be people who hear of us and choose not to be a part. So why can't we go where people are making meaning and help foster that? 
In a changing political climate, one of the ways we foster resilience is by lending support, perhaps, to those religious communities that are uniquely poised to be heard by those in power. In Knoxville, we have an organization called the Knoxville Interfaith Christian Ministers Association. And on that board, on that organization, are members, uh, ministers from the uh, Metropolitan Community Church in Knoxville and the Tennessee Valley Unitarian Universalist Church. Kigma is made up primarily of African-American religious leaders and has played a major part in effecting change in Knoxville's community, such as the establishment of a citizen review board of the Knoxville Police Department, community services for those whose lives have been affected by HIV-AIDS. These organizations were already doing this work before the Unitarians and the Metropolitan Community Ministers got there. It wasn't for us to come in and do this work all over again. It was for us to figure out ways to partner with organizations that already exist. And one of the greatest stories of this relationship came from one of the ministers who was reporting back on a conversation that came up in one of the meetings. In one of the meetings, they were making a big deal about the fact that this was a Christian ministers association, and we had ministers from the Unitarians and ministers from the Metropolitan Community Church. And the question started to come up, what do we really want our membership to look like? And the other ministers on the board started to think about this. And before the conversation got too far, one of the leaders stood up and said, anyone who wants a seat at this table should have it. The people at this table are not our enemies. And it was because we had reached out. It was because we had found ways of working with an organization within our community that we were able to establish this relationship. But being with community with others different than us can also give us a better sense of who we are. Because in that relationship, the ministers found ways of coming to terms with their differences, realizing where we stood on different issues. In the changing climate, the true test of our faith, the test of our survival, might come not in how many of the religious nuns we can convince to come to Unitarian Universalism, Perhaps the true test of our faith is how we will find ways of knowing who we are and working with other organizations and other people within our larger community. Lewin Hanauer spoke in their book saying, the best way to improve your likelihood of surviving and thriving is to make sure those around you survive and thrive. Notwithstanding American theology about selfishness making the world go round, Humans have in fact evolved, have been selected to look out for others in their group, and in so doing, to look out for ourselves. We exist today because this is how our ancestors behaved, and we evolve today by ensuring that our definition of our group is wide enough to take advantage of diversity and narrow enough to be actionable, they say. As I was driving this morning to come to be with you this morning, the news came on, and they were talking about the Unite the Right rally that's happening in Washington, D.C. this morning. 
And I realized that nowhere in my sermon this morning had I thought about speaking to this. But I think at the heart of it, those who are organizing from places of privilege, because their privilege is being threatened, they're not lamenting a lack of rights. They're not lamenting a way of being in the world that is going away. Maybe they are. It's just not a good one. But what they're lamenting, perhaps, is more this old way of thinking. This zero-sum mentality that says that if we have more diverse population, the people who have been in privilege for so many years are going to lose their rights, which is an absurd way of thinking. But it stems from this idea that only the strong survive, only the people who have a voice, only the people who have the only voice are the ones who survive. And so perhaps the best way to counter this kind of thinking on a long-term scale is to figure out ways that we as people of faith can figure out a way to incorporate an emerging theology. One that sounds more like this. You've heard it before. What goes around comes around. The better you do, the better I do. It's survival of the smartest, and only the cooperative survive. Teamwork wins. There's no such thing as a self-made person. All for one, and one for all. I had a different ending for this morning's sermon, but I think perhaps we'll end it this way. I invite you to think back on the animal that you called to mind at the beginning of the service. I want you to think about what it is that that animal does in its environment. Whatever it is, think about the ways it interacts with the other members of its community. Think about the ways it not only takes from the natural world, but the ways in which it gives back. When it comes to Unitarian Universalism, what if we didn't think about ourselves as competitors in a dog-eat-dog world? What if instead we found ways to be like the salamanders, finding our place of survival within a larger community? Earlier, I gave people, I gave everybody in here an assignment to tell someone what the chalice means to them. And I'm going to end today's service with a similar assignment. Take some time to think about these questions. What does Unitarian Universalism mean to you? If you're not a UU, what does your faith and value system mean to you? What are your morals? And how does that system, how does your Unitarian Universalism, how does your faith call you to be in community with those around you? These are not rhetorical questions, and they require us to give an answer. And so I end this morning's sermon with the beautiful words that we heard earlier during the covenant of letting go. Beginning in this sacred place and reaching outward, 
May we create a just and peaceful world where all voices are heard, all spiritual paths are treasured, and all carry love within. May it be so, and blessed be.